Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, hey, this is the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hey, friend, hope you're having a great day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So you got to hit that subscribe button and join us as we change the world. I am here with the man, Steve Koslow from Allianz, Chief uh, Ethics Compliance Officer. How you doing, my friend? Doing great, thank you. So uh, we just we're just coming off of a long weekend. Um, this is our second attempt at this. Our first time we had some technical difficulties, and we're not pointing fingers. Hopefully, you're not pointing them at me. Um, but we are back, and we're ready to uh, dive deep. So, anyways, uh, Steve, what I really like about you, you have this really cool background, this really cool um, you know path into ethics and compliance, and you're doing a lot of really cool things inside your company and outside of it, which I hope to touch on. Um, but before that, let's just kind of start talking about your path into ethics and compliance. I always think that that's such a great uh, and exciting, I don't know, I'm just always fascinated by people's path into this game because uh, like we always say, so many of us are sort of uh, slipping off the log and falling into the ethics and compliance pool. And, and in many ways, that's a pretty apt description. Um, I had a fairly eclectic uh, career coming into this. I was a teacher for many years. Uh, then from teaching, I went into uh, went to law school, uh, was practicing law, and part of my career was with MetLife. And when I was with MetLife in their law department, that was the beginning of sort of the compliance world was starting to emerge. This was in the late 90s, uh, mid to late 90s. And um, like many folks of, of my vintage, we started in the law department, we started as lawyers, um, and began practicing law. And then right. from... That life, I went to PricewaterhouseCoopers, where I was a consultant working with a number of companies, helping them with compliance programs. And then from there, went to uh, directly into a compliance program as their chief compliance officer, uh, both in Madison, Wisconsin, and then here in uh, Minneapolis with different companies. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been a roundabout way of doing it. Yeah. And you're in a very kind of highly regulated industry. Um, and what I found is that, you know, um, those are the ships that sort of rise first when the tide moves, you know? And so it sounds like you've really been at the front end of, well, let me, let me back up. Um, I think we, we were maybe talking about this in our show flow or at, at another point before. I'm kind of new to the ethics and compliance game. Um, I'm, you know, I haven't even been in this game for a decade at this point. I love it, it but it seems like there is this like, this swell, this like, this big inflection point coming is, is what it seems like. Um, and it seems like there's all this change about to come and you know, all this change that's happening now is just kind of uh, foretelling what I think the next five to 10 years are gonna look like. As you look back across your time, you know, even going, going back to the late 90s when you really started kind of uh, you know, stepping into the pool, so to speak. I mean, there was, there was a ton of change at that time. So, I mean, has yeah. the rate of change changed or has it just always just been constant and kind of at this type, type of a, a pace? I think there's been a, a rise, plateau, rise, plateau, rise, plateau. When I started in compliance back in the you know mid to late 90s, it was a very technical and tactical uh, type of a of a of an organization of a of an organization. So at MetLife, for example, we were focused on advertising review. We were focused on complaint handling. Uh, we were focused on some of the very technical regulations that were coming to the forefront. Uh, by the state regulators primarily in a highly regulated area like 
um, insurance. And so the, the regulators became very interested in how we were selling, whether we were protecting consumers. And so they began to develop a number of expectations that were very technical in nature. So our my career started out focusing on those technical requirements. It evolved though in probably the early 2000 to much more of a risk-based approach. In other words, rather than trying to be compliant with a technical regulation, what was the risk you're trying to manage? And, and, and taking a viewpoint of looking at the risk portfolio and asking whether or not the, the controls were commensurate with the risk. So take, for example, the anti-money laundering world. The anti-money laundering world changed pretty dramatically, obviously, after 2001. And it became much more of a principle-based approach. So the, the controls that were right for one company may not be right for another company, but they were asking us to look at what, were, what was the risk we were trying to manage, and then were our controls effective for that risk? That was a pretty dramatic shift in how we viewed, at least how I viewed, managing compliance. You know, And then the culture side of it started to come into the forefront much more directly. You know, in, 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 as I was working with companies as part of uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, the idea of, of first and second line began to emerge. Um, and the idea that the, first, the culture in the first line was so tremendously important was where we began to focus. And so you, know, you could have all the best controls in the world, but if you didn't have the right culture, it, it really wasn't meaningful. And so it, there, you know, getting back to your point, it, it, there, were, there were rises, plateaus, rises and plateaus. And it's very interesting to think about where the next rise is going to come from. And I would submit that the next rise is really being driven by, by analytics um, and the metrics that we have around compliance so that you can begin to more effectively and dramatically detect whether or not you're managing the risk effectively. So think about, think about you know, you've, got, you've got three sides to a triangle. You have prevention, you have detection, and you have response. We spent a long time on prevention with training programs, with um, rules, regulations, and all of this. We, we focused on detection, but not as dramatically as I think we can. And I think that's where you're going to begin seeing the rise of metrics, if that helps. So, so, so let's dive into that. There is a lot. I, I love, uh, um, you know, graphics, triangles with words on the side. Um, I think they sum up, I mean, it's such an easy way to hold on to sort of concepts. So talk to me, walk me through that again, pretend I'm an idiot. Don't, um, you know, you don't have to try that hard. Well, you're, um, you're certainly not, but let's. <laughs> All right. But just kind of explain this to me like I'm five, you know, my mom is yeah. listening to this podcast and she doesn't even understand this stuff. Explain it to me that way. In the compliance world, the first thing we want to do is we want to prevent bad things from happening. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that employees, that, that we are complying with regulatory requirements and expectations, that we are complying with consumer expectations. Mm -hmm. So we want to prevent bad stuff from happening. And we do that by having very good policies and procedures, by having training in place, by having, um, you know, automating to the extent that we can okay. so that we, that we reduce. But that's on the prevention side. Then you have the detection side. 
no matter how good we are at prevention, stuff's going to happen. And some stuff, not intentionally, but just, we don't know, for example, whether a product is designed effectively that people are going to understand the products that we are putting out there. So we have to look at, you know, whether it's complaints, whether there's all different kinds of metrics we can look at to say, oh, wait a second, we've got an issue. So let's go back and either retrain, redesign, you know, put new policies in place, automate, whatever. But it's that detection side of the triangle that I find most fascinating because the more we can get into the, the, the metrics that are um, mm -hmm. indicators of a problem, the quicker we can detect an issue and then we can respond effectively. In other words, you know, it's one thing to detect something, but then you have to do something about it. Yeah, it's sort of a flywheel, right? You have this prevention exactly. side of the, uh, of the triangle. The detection will give you some indication on the extent to which these uh, preventative measures or these tools mm -hmm. that drive prevention are, are effective. And then obviously you have to do something about that data. So um, we've had data this whole time, right? How have we fallen short? How has, you know, I mean, because I mean, I come from a finance background, so I'm not, you know, I like data. I like spreadsheets. I like um, analysis. That's kind of what my previous life was sort of totally built on. And I've been a little bit surprised, frankly, by sort of the general aversion that a lot of people seem to have to this, you know, this, what I, what I would just call like, it, it's another tool. It's another fruit, you know, or it's another Absolutely. tree in the, in the orchard that you can pull some, some, you know, some fruit from to, to nurture yourself and drive, you know, better results. What do you think that's, that's rooted in and how do, and how have you seen folks get kind of lost in these, these data lakes, as I call them? Yeah, there, there were two challenges that we had to overcome two pretty, pretty significant challenges. One was that most of the data was in disparate systems in most companies um, that occurred. You know, as, as the companies grew, they built new systems. The systems didn't necessarily talk to each other. And so trying to get to that proverbial data lake, as you call it, um, was, was more complicated than, than people realize. And you just couldn't get, get to the data in a way that was reliable and meaningful. Mm -hmm. The second challenge was... We started out, you start out first and foremost by asking questions. You know, if that's the easy way to look at data is say, you know, how many, let, let's take something in my world, which is insurance, and we look for early surrenders. So I want to know whether or not somebody is surrendering a policy sooner than they're getting the value out of it. So we, we, we can look at early surrenders and I can ask the question, do I have a trend line in early surrenders in, in certain populations? So I'm driving the pull from the data. The more interesting way to look at it is, is to let the data tell you what question you should be asking. And we're just beginning ah. to scratch the surface on that. And that's where we're starting to utilize our data scientists. And we're saying, okay, you've got all this data. Tell me what question I should be asking. <laughs> and that we're just in our infancy at. And you know, perfect example of that is with fraud where we can be asking a question, you know, can I detect whether or not a, somebody is, is moving money out of a policy sooner than we would expect? That is a potential fraudulent situation going on and we can investigate. But I can also start looking at what's the data telling us about how, you know, 70, 80 year olds are managing their money. And am I starting to see trends with that? 
And what would an outlier of that trend be? So what would the outlier be? And that's the flag. So going at it both from the question into the data and then from the data telling us what questions we should be asking. Yeah, it's kind of flips it on its head a little bit. And I think it's easy to get um, inundated by the data or get in, you know, I mean, for a medium sized company that maybe doesn't have a whole data scientist department um, that they can pull from, I see a lot of these folks get kind of lost in it and they're they're looking for, you know, the stock reports that come out of any one of their, you know, to your point, um, you know, separate systems to like give them the answer. But kind of, again, to your point, there are probably unique stories in whatever data you're looking at. And it all totally comes down to the scientific sort of method that you take in trying to falsify your hypothesis. Like, it, but again, the whole kind of crux there is asking that right question and forming that right hypothesis to see if you can nullify it or not. You know what I mean? That's exactly right. And, you know, having the right data and the right analytics is only the first step of it. You know, the whole con right. the whole area around visualization of being able to communicate a risk situation to senior leadership so that they very quickly can understand how much risk are we holding on to? And is our risk world changing? And that's all visualization. And that even the smallest company can do because you have the data, you have the information. How are you, how are you communicating that effectively? And that's really where we started. We started with visualization. Well, that's a great point. Um, and you know, I think a lot of these concepts, you know, I love talking to folks like you who are at the top of these really large organizations that are extremely complex, because many times you guys are at the cutting edge, you guys are at the forefront of the innovations that are happening that are going to cascade back across the rest of, of the industry. And sometimes I think, you know, our average listener who's maybe at a sort of a smaller or more midsize, um, you know, or even a fortune thousand company, um, who's not really at that top echelon, they might look at that as like, oh man, they have it all. And man, one day it'd be great to have all those resources. But I think the big takeaway is to recognize that the fundamental like approaches to um, the problem can be sort of gathered from any of you innovators and applied to whatever you have to work, to work with. And, you know, I, you know, live and die by the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. If you can get 80% of it right, if you can ask, you know, the 20% of the right questions to get 80% of that result, you're going to be leaps and bounds and orders of magnitude ahead of where you otherwise would be. So there's so much to pull from what you're talking about, irrespective of whether you have a data scientist, you know, who just analyzes data all day long. You probably have an, an auditor analysis. You probably have an, an accountant working, um, you know, across a Zoom meeting from you that you can get some insights on how to analyze this quicker in Excel or whatever. But the point is you, you, you know, to use you as an example, you're solving for, for outcome. Everything we're talking about right now is you, right. you solving for outcome and recognizing that we have to push this forward. We have to be able to visualize risk better. We have to be able to convey that to leadership better, not only for our own selfish interest to show our worth at a, at a greater degree, but to show our worth to those around us in terms of meaningfully managing the risks of our organization. So Many times I just think so much of this stuff seems so far away, um, but it's really right right there. We can we can start to put some semblance of that into practice. And you and it's it is a little bit of three steps forward, two steps back. Yeah, you know, it, it, there's a lot of 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 trying, seeing if it works, finding out it doesn't, trying something else, seeing if it works, it doesn't, trying something else. It's it's a continuous journey 
forward. And if I look back, some of our very early forays into this were, you know, not very good. And sure. we, you know, I'd, I'd take a picture to somebody and I'd, and I'd say, you know, what do you see from this graph? And they would tell me what they see from it. And I'd say, well, that's not at all what I wanted to share with you. So <laughs> I go back to the drawing board and that's okay. You know, I mean. Well, I mean, that's natural. That's the natural path of innovation. That's the natural path of continuous improvements. It's a plan, do, check, act, plan, do, check, act. Exactly. And, you're, and you make little bets and you don't go all in on every single hand that you're dealt. You make little bets and you see like, okay, is this kind of indicating, you know, is this kind of showing what I expect it to show? And to your right. point, are other people, you know, am I not getting lost in the data and just seeing what I wanted to see? Is someone else going to kind of come to that same, same conclusion? And that's how we can make sort of bigger bets over time. Um, and so I think you and I are kind of cut from the same cloth in many respects um, in terms of, I think, how we see this game and where we see it moving. I'd like to kind of go back into your price. Well, maybe even before your, your PwC days, um, you said that you were a teacher. What were you mm -hmm. teaching and what caused you to take that leap into law school? That's really an interesting question. I, was, I, was a, uh, I taught fifth and sixth grade. Uh, three of those years I taught in Wisconsin. Six of those years, my wife and I lived in Saudi Arabia, and I taught school for the Arabian American Oil Company, wow. um, which was a fascinating experience. And I just realized, I mean, I love teaching, but it, 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 I wanted to do something different, and that's why I went to law school. I actually started out thinking I was going to become a lobbyist um, and ended up going a whole different direction when I was in law school. And, you know, my career has been very, um, it just moves in different directions. I've always followed people rather than, you know, the positions or pay or things of that sort. And I happen to be working for people that opened up different worlds to me. Um, and I've always found that fascinating. So when I was, when I was at a law firm, I happened to be doing a case for MetLife and got to know some people at MetLife when they had uh, a need for some, lawyers that could do being recorded okay we're back yeah you yeah you connected with some people that um they had some need for some lawyers who could do compliance right and so then i you know that got me from doing labor law which is what i was doing in law you know from law school and, and early in my legal career to doing compliance work. And then from compliance work, I, you know, you just, I follow interesting questions. I follow interesting people. Um, and that has been, as that's what sort of allowed me to, to flourish in my career and enjoy it. Um, I'm having, you know, a, a great time doing what I do. Well, it's, you know, it's funny you, you say that because I was going to kind of bring, bring that up. Um, you seem like a guy who's really in his Q zone. You're really doing what you're meant to be doing. Um, you seem like you're, you know, energetic um, and you're excited about what you're doing. And I find it interesting um, that you said that I've never, you know, I, we've done hundred something episodes of this and I've never heard someone say that I follow interesting questions. And I just, I love the picture of that, that you're following people and you're following interesting questions and you're sort of almost like trusting how the world works. You're trusting sort of, sort of the process that it's going to take care of itself. Where did that um, belief come from because not most you know most people are not most people would not have not said that to me most people do not sort of you know are they're not willing to you know pardon the sort of analogy to just follow the winds of fate in such a, such an easy way to just set the sail up and just kind of let it take them where it goes yeah i mean you know there, there is the balance of i had four kids and i had to make sure i had a paycheck coming <laughs> in and all of the rest so there was there's sure, the reality 
that always takes place. But um, I'm, I'm sort of a myopic optimist. I just, I, I have a real belief that the world is a good place, that the people I work with are, are good people. Um, and it's, it's always proved out to be very beneficial for me. Um, I, I, I don't think it was ever done by design. Um, and there certainly have been hiccups in my career where I've, you know, I've had some challenges where I've said, nope, this is not the right place. And so I've, I've moved on. Um, but at the end of the day, I've always enjoyed what I was doing, you know, and I think that that's, that's been sort of the, the secret to what, what has kept me going. Um, you know, I'm a lot older than people think I am and, and, and I have no, no intention of retiring. I just, I'm, I'm going to keep going until my, you know, my mind stops getting interested in things. I love that. My dad always said, if you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. And he said it to me my whole childhood. And I don't think I ever really understood it. Or I'm, I feel like I'm just finally starting to understand it, that you have to be fascinated by what you're doing. You have to think that you're doing something that's that's meaningful. If you're just by rote pulling a lever on a machine and you don't actually love doing this all day, then you need to figure out something else to do because we all have these gifts to put to work or we're going to get chewed up and spit out by this <laughs> bit this machine we're all, uh, we're all in, um, you know, I find it a little, so, you know, I love your energy. I love your angle. I want to dive into one thing, um, that, you know, you were a teacher and teachers always seem to be people that want to give back. They're fascinated in, you know, kind of helping the next generation. Then you went to law school and it sounded like you wanted to become a lobbyist. And then it sounded like you pivoted toward labor law, which again, seems to be very others focused. Am I right? Am I right so far on this? Right. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. yeah that's and so right. how has that sort of others focus, um, that others focusedness uh, that you seem to be built on helped you both in your, your career tra trajectory in terms of your like internal persuasion and also as your role as a compliance officer in a, you know, massive, highly complex international organization? You know, I think I learned early on that, um, our success is, is almost entirely dependent on, on other people and how we interact with them and the value we derive from um, what, they, what they can give to us. And you get that by giving to them. I, 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 it's hard to put into words, but um, I've always been very blessed. I've just been incredibly fortunate to have, to work with people that are, that are really good people and they they're caring people and it it brings out the best in me um i i i i always feel very fortunate that um the the times i've worked with the times that have been the most challenging have been the times when we've achieved the most with people and and my responsibility is to always surround myself with with People who care, I, I, I have a very little tolerance for people who are arrogant. That's, you know, we talk about what, what we don't like. I will not tolerate arrogance because we are so infinitesimally small in the big picture um, that, you know, it, it's just, it's humbling when you think about it. And so everything we get, we, it, we should be very thankful for. Um, and I don't want to get into the, you know, the whole metaphysical kind of thing, but, but I do feel that the role of compliance is one of, of giving. 
it is it is a role where we have an opportunity to help move the dial on a culture and you know as as you well know nick the 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 it's if you have your culture right the compliance takes care of itself and our responsibility and our our privilege if you will is to help move that culture and to do it in a way that allows the, the, the companies the best in a company to come out um you know and and being able to see that slowly evolve over time has just been it's been fascinating and a lot of fun yeah how cool how cool i you know i don't know it seems like well you tell me you i feel like you've kind of been here to see so much of this game and how it's evolved from you know this one level to the next level and on on to the next level um you know that transition from risk-based approach to sort of culture forward seems like a very interesting one many times it seems like innovations are very apparent you know it's like sliced bread it was just bread that's been sliced you know that's a very it's not like that big of a, it's like the bread was already there you just needed a knife to bring to it like the culture is already there the opportunity for that to reinforce the uh, overall you know um sort of quality of compliance of the organization uh, was right there to just turn on how have you been able to affect that at scale because i think a lot of folks who let, let's say you're at a 5000 person organization that's just domestic that has three different plants or three different offices or something like yeah. that many times you know i talk to folks and they feel overwhelmed by that they feel overwhelmed, like, well, how can I turn this? this? This seems like a battleship. And your your organization is orders of magnitude larger than that, international, all that kind of stuff. And yet you speak about the opportunity to sort of turn these people on and kind of affect this culture at scale. Talk to me about what that's like and where you see people like lose their footing in that game. Probably the one of the biggest lessons I learned early on was to focus on the wars, not the battles. Wow. That you want to change a culture. You change it from a collaborative us mentality. And you don't do that by through power. You do that through influence, persuasion, and and over time, credibility. So, you know, I see too many, well, in my career, too too early in my career. I needed to be right and I needed to to fight battles that you know I could win the battle just because of the number of stripes on my shoulder but it wasn't moving the culture forward it wasn't it wasn't doing anything it was winning a battle but it did nothing for the broader culture and so when I finally realized that stop worrying about the battles think about the big picture and how are you going to move the picture do you have people that are aligned in their view? Do you trust that they have good intent? If somebody has good intent, then they're gonna make missteps, but that's okay. Now you're just trying to try and, try and nudge them in a certain direction. Pretty soon, you get enough people moving in the right direction, and all of a sudden the whole thing starts to move. Right. And that's a much more powerful, long-lasting, um, has a long lasting impact than, than using your power to be right and to, 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 to win a specific battle. Now that just to be perfectly clear, I will never allow even on a small battle for us to be out of compliance with, with a regulation. Right. That is clear. 99% of the decisions that we make in a company have nothing to do with B 
being in or out of compliance. It has to do with how much risk we're willing to accept. And that, and that is, those are discussions, you know, and I'm, I am not one to say that I, I, I don't live in a zero risk tolerance world. I don't like that world. We live in right. we, risk is all around us. And so, you know, that those were, those were just important values that I learned all early on from people, from folks. I love that line. Win the war. Don't worry about winning the battles. I mean, we can get so caught up in that, yep. in that, um, you know, I guess though, at some level, it's like, it goes back to that materiality question, right? Like um, what matters and what doesn't matter? Which of these battles do you want to die on and which, or which of these hills do you want to die on? Right. You know, I mean, yeah, you've met exactly people right. and I'm, you know, I was probably this way uh, too at some point, but like, you just want to die on every hill because, well, if I die on every hill, then at least I'm not going to not die on the hill that I needed to die on. Well, it's like, you need to have a little bit of like wisdom on figuring out which, you know, which you're going to kind of engage it. How do people get that wisdom quicker? Is it just, you have to be a consultant or you have to be uh, humble or, I'm, I mean, how do you get there quicker other than just like life experience? I think, I think. Humility is a huge one. Recognizing that you don't have all the answers, or pretty much any of the answers. You work with the whole team to get up, to get the right answers. That we are we are in a long. We take a take a larger view of things. You know, I could be working with a sales producer. You know, somebody who's trying to sell something, and their wording may not be exactly the way I would have worded it, but they're not doing anything dramatically wrong. Right. And so why should I try to make it perfect in my view? It may be perfect in theirs. You know, it's really interesting. One of the best lessons I had was early on when I started at MetLife, I was working with a field force and one of the senior leaders of a region took me out for two weeks out in the field. So I could actually sit at kitchen tables with sales agents and wow. watch how they communicated with consumers. And you begin to realize how incredibly hard it is. It, it, the, what they do is important and that they all want their consumer, they, they all want their customers to understand what they're selling. Right. Yeah, they're not so, trying to hoodwink anybody. No, right. really not. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's, it's interesting. But so often, um, you know, um, so often I've seen, even in our, in, in our company, um, there's this like, there's this like territorialism that comes up or what I call the, this otherism comes up and these people get it, you know, our group gets it, but that other group doesn't get it. Marketing doesn't get it, but sales gets it or support doesn't get it, but you know, ops gets it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's so yeah. bizarre. It's so bizarre. And, um, I mean, if that's happening in a company that's a fraction of the size of your company, or if that's something that I have to fight against there, I mean, how does that not erupt? You know, I just, I, I just see so many folks kind of, kind of fall into that caricature of believing that like everybody else in the company is a bad actor except for the ethics department. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and, and and you know, every company I've worked in has those challenges and those you know silos, and and every company you know, works against them. I think what has been working well here is sort of having one vision and one voice. In other words, we are one company. 
Yeah. And we try to align around what, what are, why are, why do we exist? You know, I mean, how many companies have mission statements and have values and they don't really listen to them. I will tell you one of the things that impressed me before I even came to Allianz and Allianz life in particular, our values meant something and they are talked about constantly. And at, and at meetings, when you have disagreements, you go back to the values. Love it. Does this pursue caring, excellence, integrity? I, I mean, there, it, it, it grounds what we do and it, it crosses the boundaries of operational uh, silos. And it gives you a chance to continually ask, what should we do? In most, most decisions are not right versus wrong. Most decisions right. are right versus right. right. And you have right versus right dilemmas. So how do you choose those? You have to anchor them back in the values. And it's hard. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's meaningful. Well, your culture is just what? A culture is just the sum total of the decisions people make, how they feel, um, how they act out every single day. It's just the sum total of the behaviors of a bunch of, of individuals who decide, frankly, to come to a certain place uh, right. and work every day, right? So how do you corporately, how, how does the ethics department kind of guide those things forward? How does the C-suite guide those things forward? Well, it's like we're kind of climbing this mountain and there's a, to your point, there's a thousand ways up the mountain. Well, what's going to kind of direct our path one way or the other, it's those values, or it's going to be kind of whatever. And what I find is most companies are kind of like, well, it's kind of whatever. You know, we obviously need, because we're a company, we need a values page. We need to have some values and those, you know, we need to have something that like we point to each quarter when we put out our press release or, you know, we have a quarterly meeting. But I think the companies that really sort of like uh, animate their values or really animate their culture and really breathe life into it, to your point, are the ones who are constantly talking about it. You're constantly singing that song. And then now there's a harmony that, that you hear people humming. And now there's a, there's a guidebook essentially on how to make your decisions that again, are maybe right versus right. But the, but the confluence of those decisions consistently are going to really, you know, provide these sort of, um, you know, reinforcements of what that culture is supposed to be. And that's what allows you to kind of manage risk at scale. I think that's really that sort of culture being a, uh, a reinforcement for, or, you know, something you said earlier, which I wrote down, uh, which I'm going to get wrong, but like, if you get the culture right, you're automatically going to get the compliance right. It was something like that. That's how yeah. that can really happen. Yeah. And, and it, it really points to the, the critical role of leaders in an organization, because it's, it's up to leadership to ensure that the values conversations occur right. and that, and that they, that, that discussions and, and debates and disagreements get anchored back in those values. And that's, I mean, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to work for some phenomenal CEOs who truly walk the talk when it comes to values. I mean, and, and it's, it's absolutely critical. Um, isn't you know, it so silly though? Isn't it silly? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Isn't it silly that oh. um, it's something that's so simple? Again, maybe it's the sliced bread thing, but like you can you can spend all this time coming up with the values and it can either, it's kind of like a binary thing. It's either going to like be an amazing tool for your organization, both in terms of the employee experience and then ultimately the client experience and how compliant you are and all those kinds of things, or it's just going to totally fall flat and you're going to be kind of swimming upstream. And like, all you have to actually do is just talk about them all the time. 
You just have to, you know, make it a rule to say, I'm going to start every meeting talking about it. Or if I'm promoting somebody, I'm going to tie it down to a value. Or if I'm firing somebody, I'm going to tie it down to a value. And I'm going to share with the whole company why that value violation mattered so much. Like, it's not really that tough in a way. It shouldn't be. Um, but it's hard on a day-to-day -day basis when you're worrying about the, the, the details of decisions that are being made um, to continually think to bring it back to that, you know, it's interesting. One of the right. one of the one of the things we're thinking about now is what are the actual behaviors of integrity. In other words, what would be the behaviors that would manifest a culture of integrity? And we're looking at it from the standpoint of a culture of accountability. So, in other words, mm -hmm. if an employee is accountable, they will have a a higher probability of of, of manifesting integrity. And, and you know, and by by um, Accountability. We're talking about, you know, are they honest? Are they transparent? Do they do they demonstrate courage? Do they own their decisions? Right. And we're trying to really work hard at looking at the actual behaviors that we believe will drive the the value of integrity. And you know, we're still in the beginning stages of working through that. But I'd like to get it down to behaviors, and and then how do I promote those behaviors? Yeah, and how do you hire those behaviors? Where do you think that's, I mean, that sounds super fascinating. Where do you think that's going to go? Like, if you were to project forward, how, what do you think that this whole thing is going to look like? I actually am very hopeful on it because I think that one of the challenges most employees have is they don't feel as empowered as leadership would like them to feel. And when we empower employees mm. and, and they know that they're empowered, and they know that that honesty is valued. They will be more transparent in their in their um, trials, if you will. In other words, you know, why don't you get entrepreneurship? Because because entrepreneurship implies that you're going to sometimes fail. Well, okay, that's okay. But we have to allow that, and they have to support that. And if employees understand that, then they'll start to own their thinking, their decisions. They'll be more transparent in in the problems they're having and realize that it's okay. And so they'll try to do things that may be hard. Right. And that will be what I'm, I'm hoping accelerates uh, growth. Um, it's a pretty fascinating connection I hadn't really made before. Um, that's actually really um, insightful. Inherent to entrepreneurship is, I mean, the word is in there, right? Like you know, you feel empowered as, as an entrepreneur because you feel like you have the power to, to succeed and you know that, that you may fail. And um, you're not going to get fired from entrepreneurship. I mean, in it's sort of purest form. What do you, I mean, unless you kind of crap out. But so many people in our organizations, they can't tap into that entrepreneurial, um, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, the spirit. spirit. That spirit, Yeah. They can't tap tap into it because there's so much fear. There's a fear that their voice doesn't matter. There's a fear of failure. There's a fear that 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 they're gonna, um, you know, get in trouble or that you know whatever they say isn't gonna be acted upon. And it's totally the antithesis the antithesis of like the entrepreneurial experience where like you own everything. It's just your agency, you know. And you can try these different things and you can ex um, you can experiment, but like you have an ownership of the thing and the outcome. And I think many times. We don't see, I'm kind of like nerding out on what you're saying, but many times we don't see 
this potential that we, this spark that we think exists in everybody right. in our organization, because they're scared to take ownership of it because they don't feel like it's theirs or they, they don't want to get jaded again. They don't want to raise their hand and say, Hey, that's, you know, you know, I don't right. feel like, like that fits into the, you know, the code of conduct or the, yeah. that really nice video I saw about our values. And then they're called a snitch or, or whatever, right? Like that breaks people, that breaks people's spirit. So like, we wonder why we don't see their ownership. We don't, we wonder why we don't have all these human sensors in our organization. And like, at some level, we're not like creating the circumstances for that to sort of like blossom forward, you know? Right. It's hard. And totally. it's, 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 it comes and fits and starts yeah. and all it takes is one failure for somebody to be, to be jaded. And, yeah. you know, it takes a long time to build the trust, the psychological safety, the, you know, the spirit and, it, and, but it can be broken so quickly. Yeah. And it's just, it's, but we, you know, as long as we keep heading in the right direction, um, I remain very hopeful of, of that. That's what's going to differentiate Allianz life from, from our competitors. Well, you know, I guess if I was zooming out of everything we're talking about, what we're really talking about is authentically engaging and creating a culture of integrity that people step into your organization and they feel different and they feel like their voice matters and they feel empowered and they feel like they can make it their own. And you and I both know that there's a thousand positive externalities that come from that. People don't want to leave those kind of companies. People are willing to work just a little bit extra. Uh, for those kinds of companies, they're willing to raise their hand if something isn't going right. Like there's so many positive benefits from it. And I think, you know, um, when we were talking about like, what is this next phase? And maybe me and you are going to say this from different angles when you were talking about the data and analytics part of it, because I think that's absolutely going to be a foundation of, of what um, I'm about to say. But I feel like the companies that really separate uh, from their peers are going to be the ones that kind of get this thing right, that get this employee engagement thing right, that that understand that their external brand and their internal brand, which is really the employee experience, are the same thing. The values on that wall between what you show externally and what you live out internally are this. It's the same wall. It's the same membrane. Um, there's and recognize that there's so much opportunity if we don't just pay this lip service. You know, I mean, so many companies are just like they just pay lip service to this. Ah, uh, okay. You know, I mean, at some point there was no values. I mean, at some point there was no internet, but like at some point, uh, companies' values wasn't like a big trend. Now every company has it. Well, I think we're going to see a lot of companies kind of try to pay lip service to this thing, but those that authentically engage in it, like you seem to be doing, and like your company seems to be doing, are just going to separate at such a speed and such a velocity from everybody else. Uh, people are going to be left kind of scratching their heads. I could not have stated that better. You, you, you're absolutely right. And that is what, that's the foundation of what is driving us today at Alliance Life is the employee engagement, the culture, the, the, the belief that we actually walk the talk when it comes to our values. Um, those will be far more important than any technical decision we make on, on a day-to-day -day basis because right. it will it'll drive right. the big picture. And it's very exciting. And I think that that's, I think that will become a differentiator of companies is whether or not their culture is authentic or whether their culture is not. Totally. And, you know, it, it's, and it's something that doesn't just happen in the abstract. It happens by purpose. It, it, it leadership right. has to be very purposeful about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're not just, 
you're not just going to wander to the top of a mountain. You're not going to just wander to the top of the podium at the Olympics and get a gold medal. You're not just going to wander into a great culture. It, there's going to be a purposeful uh, visualization. There's going to be consistent effort in a similar direction. It's not always going to be perfect, of course, but it's going to be consistent and it's going to be purposeful. And um, let me ask you this. Have you been as excited about the game that we're in as you are right now? Has it gone up and down over time? Because you seem like you're, you seem like me, you seem like, like my kind of guy, like, it seems like it's all coming right now. Um, you, you know, I, I, I've always been pretty energized. I'll tell you, I mean, I, I, when I was at PwC, my team used to tell me to stop drinking so much coffee. Um, <laughs> I was a pretty high energy person. I liked whiteboards. I liked ideas. Um, and I like surrounding myself with people who have ideas. Um, I think one of the advantages I have now is is I have the support of a tremendous company, you know, and, and my leaders, everybody, there's a lot of support and it gives me the freedom to, to really do what I want to do, which is, yeah. you know, it, it's not very often you have a chance to build something the way you want to build it and try it out and play with it and, you know, take it out for a drive. Um, it's exciting. But I've always, I, I've always felt that way. Yeah, yeah. I I guess I imagine that that's true. Um, you know, when you said I can never see myself retiring, I was like, only people <laughs> who are high energy who just love what they're doing could ever say, you know, <laughs> ever say something like that. You know, um, there's like three different things I want to go into. I wish this episode was uh, longer. I'd like to talk about this one though. You said, you know, my career has had hiccups from time to time, and sometimes. I've gone into a place and I said, you know what, this is not for me. What I find is that many people who maybe they don't know their purpose or maybe they don't have the confidence in themselves or, or in the, the way the universe works or whatever, they end up getting stuck in those kinds of, of situations. They look back and they're like, oh my gosh, I've wasted so much time here. I don't see that happen, you know, ever, after having talked to you for this last hour, I don't see you kind of getting caught in that kind of a quicksand. Um, and you referenced some of those other scenarios. What was it that allowed you to kind of hit that eject button quick? Or what um, what did you smell in the air that said, you know what, I got to get out of here now? And what gave you the confidence to like do that and not get stuck somewhere? Yeah, I do. I do. I can I can remember times when it was very clear the tea leaves were clear as to where an organization was going, whether it was my own the team that I was part of, or the company, and I didn't feel that I was going to be supported or I was directly not supported in what mm -hmm. my view was going to be. And it was time to leave. It was time to move on. And I've been very fortunate that I have been able to move from one place to another when the time is right. And, and it doesn't mean that those places were wrong. It just wasn't right for me. Totally. And that's okay. You know, I mean, you could, you have to, you have to look at whether or not a specific situation is right for you at that point in time. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And frankly, it's on you to make sure that you are spending your time in the places that your gifts can be put to the best work or can make the biggest impact. I mean, that's on you to kind of grab that steering wheel. And I, I think that's, that's good advice, I guess, to just, you know, kind of trust your gut and be looking for those tea leaves because many times the writing's right on the wall. And always be open, you know, networks have always been very important to me. I will tell you, I, I, I network relentlessly in my world, you know, it's a small little world of, of compliance officers of insurance companies. Yeah. Um, but we all know each other and, and 
having that network has been critically important during certain times of my life. I received the position I'm in right now is because I was on a board with a fellow who had this position before. And when he left, he suggested me. And it was just, I mean, those networks are so critically important. Um, Yeah, maintaining them. My my first um, my first undergraduate business class, this old uh, this old businessman came up and he was like a sage, like, a, you know, he was like a magnate and just worth a bunch of money and did a bunch of great stuff in business. And he would just sit up there and he would pontificate. Um, all, it was like the best class I ever took so much wisdom. But the first class, he said, there's two things you you know, if you only learn two things from this class, learn these things. You always got to have a plan and your network is your net worth. And I like, never it's I've never forgotten it. And it has been such phenomenal advice. And I see so many ethics and compliance folks not take advantage of this amazing community that we have. We have an amazing community of people that can reach out, that you can reach out across uh, the aisle to, who are fighting the same battles that you're fighting and who are, you know, they're, they're inventing wheels that you're probably reinventing on your own. And we're all willing to share because we're all trying to fight for higher integrity companies. You know what I'm saying? It's such a unique yeah. thing that's not inherent to sales. It's not inherent to manufacturing. You think- no. You know, you think GM's, uh, you know, quality control guy is reaching out to Ford's GM, you know, Ford's uh, quality control guy to say, hey, how do you get your challenges better? They're not doing that. They're enemies. You know, we're all fighting the same battle and it's such a unique thing. And I just see so many folks not take advantage of of that thing. Um, Let's jump to this question. I always ask this question. Um, Let's go back in our time machine, find a young Steve and give him some advice you wish you got earlier. This could be you in grade school. This could be you in junior high or high school, or maybe right as you're coming out of uh, out of law school. What advice do you wish you had that would have really allowed you to make an even bigger impact than you've made? You know, I, I guess if I were to put that into words, it would be to trust trust the world. You know, I learned to trust the world over a long period of time. And I think early on in my career, I was, you know, a little skeptical, a little, little, you know, unsure of myself, didn't have the confidence. I would, I would just trust the world. It's, it, you know, good people trying to do good things. And don't worry so much about, about trying to achieve something. Just enjoy. I don't know. I, it, it's, I wish I, w- I didn't take myself so seriously back then. I would. I wish I would have not taken myself so seriously. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Enjoy the ride a little bit instead of just being so focused on yeah. that destination. Yeah. Yeah. That's, exactly. That's great exactly. advice. So, Steve, I know we're getting to the end of our time. I feel like this could have gone in literally another hour. Uh, there's so much other stuff I wanted to talk to you about. Um, where can people get in touch with you? Where, where where can they find you? And maybe even call out your uh, that that organization you're on the board of as well. Well, sure. Um, you can easily reach me at, at steve.coslo at alliancelife.com. Um, I'm on a couple of different boards of directors. I've, uh, this definitely the Compliance and Ethics Forum for Life Insurance. I'm on that board. I'm also on the board of a, of a community uh, mental health area. But the easiest way to reach out, I'm also on LinkedIn. So anybody can look me up on LinkedIn and connect. Um, and I'd love to hear, you know, I'd love to connect with other compliance people all the time. I learned so much from everybody I talked to. Uh, it is, you're right. It is a community and it's it is. a great community. It is. It's, it's really special. And um, I don't think most people who have spent their whole lives or a significant part of their life in this industry can appreciate how special it actually is because it really is. I've never seen anything like it. Okay. Uh, thank you for joining us for the ethics experts until next time.